The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Discretion is advised. <laughs> hey there, folks. This is Kristen Williams with another podcast. And this week is a bit different because the great flu epidemic of 2018 is sweeping through the nation right now, and it has descended upon Houston with a vengeance, and our podcasters seem to be down with the flu, including myself. And so this week I've put together for you um, some segments that will... Well, I hope you enjoy. Um, There is a 2007 Unity Banquet speech by Ray Hill. Now, keep in mind, this was before Barack Obama took office, and it was before uh, many of the changes that happened in his administration went into effect. So this was pre all of that, and a lot of the things he talks about are really prescient uh, in... uh, the current times we live in and of course we have Gwen Smith's Gender Nation and Gwen Smith is of course the trans woman who started Transgender Day of Remembrance we also have a new segment that examines the avalanche of sex abuse scandals in the anti-queer movement and um, we also have an essay by the radical feminist John Stoltenberg and that's titled what the trans movement has to offer radical feminism. So I'm going to get this podcast started with the very new segment, uh, looking at the sex abuse scandals and the anti-queer movement. I hope you enjoy it. And while you're listening to our podcast, just know that we are all suffering here in Houston, that uh, we are all sick and near death. And so what would really help is that you would go to our Patreon page (laughs) and pledge uh, your support to this podcast and the work that the Trans Advocate does. All right. I hope you have a good week, or at least a better week than us, and we'll see you next week. (coughs) It's time for an installment of... Yet another anti-queer activist is sexually abusing someone... And we need to talk about it. Michelle Obama's a tranny. No homos! He looks like a homo. Homosexuality poses a risk to children. Welcome to the part of the podcast wherein we review news concerning yet another anti-queer activist sexually abusing someone. This week, we take a look at Pastor Andre Savage, who coerced an underage girl into sexually servicing him on the outskirts of Houston. But before we do that, let's look at the bad advice Pastor Andre Savage gives out to queer people. The good pastor called gay people wicked and said, quote, God does not approve of homosexuality as a proper way to live. During one sermon, the pastor relayed the way he helped a gay man live a life of ritualized repression, saying, quote, Tim has never been able to get rid of same-sex attraction. He understands that, for the foreseeable future, he will live with same-sex attraction, However, he also cannot deny the clear teaching of Scripture that acting upon those desires is a sin, so he has joyfully accepted living a celibate life. For the first time in our friendship, Tim finally feels the freedom of God's grace. Yeah, because repression is freedom, and grace is the same thing as never being open to a loving relationship with someone you want to grow old with. So yeah, you probably get what sort of pretentious anti-queer asshole this guy is. But wait, there's more. 
According to CBS News, Pastor Andre Savage admitted to sexually assaulting a minor and was given a standing ovation by his followers at what is now his congregation at the High Point Megachurch in Memphis, Tennessee. Chris Conley, another pastor at the megachurch, said that, unlike their rapist pastor, the rapist's victim, quote, has not been on the same road to healing. The victim, Jules Woodson, said, I was sexually assaulted by my youth minister when I was 17 years old. The assault happened a bit north of Houston after a church event. The rapist pastor said he was going to drive her home, but stopped along an empty road and sexually assaulted her instead. According to KPRC News in Houston, the victim said, This is something I've struggled with all my life. Making it worse, the victim says the church leaders asked her to keep silent about what happened. The rapist resigned and moved to Tennessee, where he became a pastor at the High Point Megachurch in Memphis. She said, It's very hard to tell your story. It's very hard to speak up, especially when you feel pressured by the church to be silent. Empowered by the Me Too movement, Woodson says she felt compelled to speak up. If you're a victim of sexual assault, you can get help through any of the following queer positive providers. The National Sexual Assault 24-7 Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. The Love is Respect 24-7 Hotline by texting Love Is to 22522. The Anti-Violence Project LGBTQ 24-7 Hotline at 212-714-1124. GLBT National Help Center Hotline at 1-800-246-PRIDE. The Network Lared, serving LGBTQ, poly, and kink survivors of abuse at 617-742-4911. When I give a lot of speeches, no one gives me this much time, however, Jennifer. That may be dangerous. <laughs> Uh, I promise not to use all of it, but I, I, I hope that, that some of the things I say have some relevance in your lives. I remember the battles that we all went through. Our first problem was that we were invisible, we did not exist. Remember my friend and colleague and comrade Harvey Milk did not say organize, organize, organize. He said, come out, come out, come out. Because there's something about freedom and liberty and equality that they don't tell you unless you read enough Sololinsky. They don't give anybody liberty, freedom, and equality. They don't give anybody justice. You have to declare that. And the minute you declare it, it then belongs to you. And if someone wants to come take that away from you, that is a defensive battle. And it's always easier to prepare for a defensive battle than it is an offensive battle. But never has been the time when white Americans went to black Americans and say, we're going to give you equality. Black Americans had to struggle to win that. Never was a time when England came and said, we're going to set you Americans independent and free. We had to declare that, and then when they sent their ships over here and their soldiers over here, we had to defeat them or sink them and send them scouring back across the Atlantic to set ourselves free. You set yourself free, and our problem was that we did not exist. 
And so if I was going to do some, anything about that problem, I had to make a lot of noise, and that's where I get my reputation for having this outsized ego, because I challenge people like the formerly blue uniform wearing Sergeant Oliver. I've known Sergeant Oliver from around the police station for 15 or 20 years. I didn't have a hint. <laughs> Not a hint. Until, until Julia walked out in her lawyer's office before press conference and I said, Oh my God. <laughs> but let me tell you, when Julia walked out, I got calls from police officers, old and young, married and non, all over the country. Hey, what are y'all putting in the water? <laughs> in Houston. And I said, freedom and equality and justice and dignity and honor and truthfulness. Truthfulness. There has always been a conspiracy that expects us to lie. Ralph Reed and some of the moral majority people they say we should go back in our closet. Translation, we should cease to be honest about who and what we are so we can deserve the second-class citizenship that they want to give us. I hope each of you, because many of you, many of you were the guys that grew up to the women I intended you to be. <laughs> And many of you came to me at the cusp of saying, where do you get the courage? Well, you got it or you wouldn't have asked me that question. <laughs> You're on your way there. You decide what your future is going to be. It's never easy. We, I'm looking over here at the HRC table. These are wonderful people. Uh, as truth <laughs> be known, I joined HRC by putting my dues money in Steve and Dean's hands when he said, what do you think about this idea? Way back when. And Steve was a cute booger. <laughs> I would have put more than my money in his hands if I'd had the opportunity. <laughs> you, you all knew before I got up here that I was one of the world's leading sinners and I take great pride in that. All due respect, Reverend, and uh, take great pride of that. I was worried about my documentary that I'm going to go see with Huntsville Wednesday. I was afraid they were going to sanctify me, but uh, fortunately they did not. I, uh, HRC at one point had trouble with the transgender issue. I suppose all those things are now resolved, thanks to the persistence of Phyllis and others. And I think they got together. I went to one of their meetings in uh, Minneapolis. I walked in a room where over half of the men were prematurely orange-haired. <laughs> and they said, well, uh, we're not going to ever get the right reputation as long as these drag queens are visible. So there was a resolution to hide the drag queens. But I want you to think about, I don't think you can hide drag queens. 
I think that's like the elephant in the drawing room. You can try as you may, but you can't ignore them. Certainly not without their cooperation. I mean, I mean, how would you do that? You would come to a transgendered organization and say, well, in our struggle for equality and freedom, we don't think you deserve it yet. Therefore, would you please hide? Now, what kind of reaction would you get in that room of <coughs> suggesting that you hide the drag queen? I, I, I actually at one time thought about that, but I was married to Tiffany Jones at the time and changed my mind almost overnight. Uh, at least I do without a lot. And, uh, uh, but I think that's very interesting. We get sometimes so self-assured that we divide ourselves up giving various levels of worth to one another. Let's just stop doing that. Either we all get there or none of us get there. I, I, I recall our first march on Washington. Everybody in, that was in the movement said this can't be done. The, pre, the HRC people before HRC and the LGF, LGTF people before LGTF was really rolling too good said don't come to Washington. You're only going to make a fool of yourself and nobody's going to be there. And we just kept on organizing and kept on organizing. We were the outsiders. We were the radicals. I, I could find Phyllis Fry there because she had the largest American flag on the field. Phyllis, a veteran, wanted to make sure that veterans, even though they had been removed from the military service, that Americans were wanting and declaring their freedom that day. And then a couple of years later, a few years later, they had another march on Washington and Phyllis called me and she said, I'm going to boycott the march. And I said, Phyllis, I want you to think about this for a minute. If you don't go, you won't be missed. But if you do go and you raise hell, you will never be forgotten. don't know if it was that advice that stopped the march for about 30 minutes, <laughs> but it worked. And everybody in the national movement for gay and lesbian equal rights and liberty and justice and freedom thought, well, there is this other group of people that we need to include. It was very easy for me to be the champion of inclusion because I think the first thing that I did for the cause of gay equality is I interrupt the beating of a five or six young man at the swimming hole on Carpenter's Bayou between Cloverleaf and Channelview, Texas. I had gone over there to go swimming with the guys because the views are nice there. And there was a young man who showed up who was admittedly gay and an older young man beat him and drew blood. And since I was a little older than the older one, 
and a lot bigger, I whooped his ass. And escorted his victim through the woods to Channelview to within a block of his house so he could get home safely. I never saw that young man again. But I've never forgotten that young man. You see, Red Hill grew up to be the man, Queen, his mother, Frankie Taylor Hill, wanted him to be. I grew up to be the guy that rubbed the cat hair the wrong direction because the world needs a lot of fixing and if you're not willing to be the least popular person in a room full of uncomfortable people, you will make no change. And in that process, I know Jack and others, I have embarrassed you in public, getting up and saying things and Jack has the patience to accept it kind of just silently. Other of my friends, Sue Lovell, likes to make apologies for me. <laughs> Parker just tells everybody, you know he's crazy. And, <laughs> and, and, and I know that. But let me tell you, that's not all accidental. I, 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 I am, number one, am that stupid, and number two, I do that because if you don't make people uncomfortable, they are not going to change anything. Comfortable people do not change. Now, there's a lot of concern these days about what Senator Dan Patrick, and let me tell you, you can call him that in this crowd, don't try calling him Senator Dan Patrick in a crowd of senators. Or you will get negative feedback immediately. And Representative Warren Children. I don't know what they have in the water in Tampa. But I don't want none of it. But let me tell you something. I am not trying to change Warren Chisholm's and Dan Patrick's opinion about who we are. I don't want them as friends. I see no need. The people whose opinions of who we are I want to change are us. Because this whole movement, those of you who have maxed out your credit cards to go to marches on Washington and demonstrations in Austin and Pride Week parades in Houston and, and give all that, and if you thought you were going there to get somebody else to care about us, you wasted your money because as organizer of those activities, the reason I was getting you there is so that you could see others like yourself and be seen by them because it is gay, lesbian, transgendered, bisexual, intersexed people, our friends and supporters. It is what we think of ourselves on which our freedom and equality and the justice that we receive is predicated. There is no other... There is no other way to do it.
And I came out of the closet in 1958. Half of the people in this room were not born in, before 1958. But those of you that were born before 1958, imagine for a moment what we thought about queers of all kinds then. And think for a moment of what we are thought of today. You're welcome. I didn't do all that work myself, but I was certainly in the rooms where it was plotted and planned and helped design the execution. And do you have any idea what it is like for me to walk next to those panels in the quilt and see the fallen comrades with whom I have soldiered for my entire career? There's one panel. It's by black and white men together, and they were the organization that made up the committee of the uh, inclusion of minorities in the first march of Washington. Mine is the only name not on that large panel. Every other member of that committee is on that panel. The losses that we have had, the tragic loss of some of the most talented people, people who did the PR work for Sackowitz and Needless Markup and, and all of the retail merchants in Houston designed their ads and, and made them successes that they are, they all died in a short season. And we have memorial services for them. I have lost so many friends. My friends started dying of AIDS before it had a name. They started coming down with Kaposi sarcoma and others were dying of a pneumonia that we didn't understand. And it wouldn't be until 1982 that we got the word AIDS. But before that, my friends were dying. And if we someday reach a point where we can look back on our history and say we are in the post-AIDS era, I hope we take time to stop and look back at who we were during that era. There is no example in history no, zero, no other example in history where a devalued, often despised group of people faced a tragedy of anything near that proportion and did not run away from it, but we ran toward it. Today, the typically newly infected person with AIDS is not gay. But as a woman of color of childbearing age, her sex partners and her children. But who is running the organizations? Who is still on duty? Who has brought women of color of childbearing age to the table to help with the decisions 
but who is providing the work. It was almost as if this fellow Sololinsky had written the game plan. We are among and arguably the most responsible community of people in human history. And I want us to take pride in that. When Titsworth comes up here and bears her tears for a cause of neglected children and abused children, that is who we are. Whenever those of us who go to West Texas and insist that there be prosecution for youth commission officials who have sexually abused children in their care, that is who we are, not who they are. I'm getting old. I'm 66, and I'm launching a new career in the area of criminal justice reform. I get letters from gay people all over the prison system. I corresponded until they executed her with a transgender person on death row. They tell me that my being openly gay and the leading critic of the criminal justice system has brought them more security and safety than anything else that has ever happened. Again, it's not organized, organized, organized. It is come out, come out, come out. I have been accused of dating Socrates, but I didn't quite make that guess. But Socrates was not entirely stupid. He didn't write much down. But uh, one of his, he was a gay school teacher, you know. And one of his students, a fellow by the name of Plato, remembered something that he said. Appear to be the person you wish to be and thereby become it. Every person in this room is who Socrates was talking to. Appear to be the person you wish to be and thereby Transfeminism is an ongoing series of interviews and essays focusing on the intersection of feminist and trans activism. In this installment, John Stoltenberg considers what the trans moment has to offer radical feminism. John Stoltenberg, author of Refusing to Be a Man, The End of Manhood, and the novel Goners, is a trans-inclusive radical feminist, theater reviewer, and communications consultant based in Washington, D.C. What the Trans Moment Has to Offer Radical Feminism, Part 1, by John Stoltenberg, narrated by Tiana Hansen. I recently read an essay about men and rape, written from a radical feminist point of view, which included a particular statement that jumped out at me. Quote, Men's intrusive and abusive sexual behaviors against women, 
as well as girls, boys, and vulnerable men, are so woven into the everyday fabric of life in a patriarchal society that the intrusion and abuse is often invisible to men. What surprised me was not the author's identification of the perpetrator class, men. If we're talking about rapists statistically, after all, we're pretty much talking about people raised to be a man. And given the privilege and sensitivity that men are entitled to in male supremacy, the author's point about men's obliviousness to the extent and harm of rape made self-evident sense as well. No, what struck me instead was the author's earnest attempt, within careful parentheses, to describe the victim class inclusively. In discussions of most issues of urgent concern to radical feminism, this inclusivity very much needs to be referenced. Sex trafficking, sexual harassment, intimate partner violence, these abuses, and more, happen not only to cisgender women, and radical feminist insights about those abuses can benefit many other victimized populations. But, to my mind, this is the point at which the author's case fell short. For to describe accurately the class of potential and actual victims of rape would necessarily mean including people who are trans, non-binary, gender non-conforming, intersex, and otherwise not specifically cisgender. The impact on rape on all such diverse individuals' lives was not known, and maybe not knowable, when activism against rape arose in the so-called second wave of feminism in the 1960s and onward. But it is now known very well, especially among victim services providers, and today, to leave out such lives is to collude in their erasure. I suspect that the author I have quoted, a vocal critic of, quote, transgenderism, made no mention of people with alternate sex and gender realities on purpose. I almost never read acknowledgement in writings by transcritical radical feminists that what male supremacy does to, quote, women-born women, it does to a multiplicity of others as well. It's a blind spot they tend to share. But even if in this instance the omission of those many others had been unconscious or inadvertent, it would have substantially undermined the claim to truth being made, making it partially false. Why should it matter that the sexual violence victim pool be as sex and gender diverse in radical feminist discourse as it is in real life? I see four important reasons. 1. Accuracy. Rape happens to a whole host of folks, and rapists do not run birth certificates or run chromosome tests before deciding whom to rape. Radical means going to the root. Radical feminism aims to go to the root of male supremacy's sexualized domination and danger, to end it, to abolish it. Telling a partial truth about whom it harms is not the way to reach the root. 2. Inclusivity Truthful inclusivity in naming who is in harm's way from rape is an essential component of building an empowered moment of resistance to rape. For someone to acknowledge as actual or potential rape victims only those who match one's natal sex is to participate unwittingly in making invisible other rape victims, such that what could become broad-based solidarity against male supremacy is less likely to occur. Consistency Remaining beholden to the sex binary, the belief that the sex classes men and women are defined by nature, not male supremacy, not only erases a whole lot of folks whom male supremacy targets for contempt and violence, it silences them by not listening to them. It inferiorizes them by privileging others. It minimizes their pain and trivializes their grievance. It does to them, in other words, exactly what radical feminism was meant to put an end to. 4. Efficacy the sex binary is actually a primary driver of rape. See my essay, What's the Sex Binary Got to Do with Rape? The sex binary is enforced by rape and causes rape. The sex binary and rape serve each other and male supremacy like a circular system. 
Any political movement against rape that does not understand this connection is fated to fail. For a human's raised to be a man, there is a male supremacist mandate to prove one's manhood by any means necessary, which can include bullying, sexual harassment, sexual assault, and worse. Therefore, policing the boundaries of who gets to count as a victim according to who fits the sex binary does nothing to subvert the binary-based belief system of the perpetrator. The sex binary, to paraphrase Audrey Lorde, is male supremacy's tool. Only exploding the sex binary will bring down the master's house. Each of these four points, if paid attention to, would bolster the theoretical validity of radical feminist analysis and increase the political force of its practice. Taken together, they represent one part of what the present trans moment has to offer radical feminist revolution. is a bi-weekly trans advocate column by the founder of the Transgender Day of Remembrance, Gwendolyn Ann Smith. Trans Prisoners, the Next Battleground A federal court case represented by the Alliance Defending Freedom, Rhonda Fleming versus the United States of America, could effectively bar transgender prisoners from facilities appropriate to their gender identity. The case filed in late 2016 under the Obama administration seeks to have trans-feminine prisoners removed from Federal Medical Center Carswell, a federal prison for women located in Fort Worth, Texas. Regulations were established in 2012 to protect transgender inmates from violence. The case is currently before District Judge Reed O'Connor, who has been hostile towards transgender rights in past cases, including protections for transgender students and workers as well as transgender health care under the Affordable Care Act. In August, lawyers for the Department of Justice argued that the women at the centre of the case had not exhausted all their administrative options and had not proven that they were threatened by having transgender inmates at the facility. Nevertheless, it is expected that the Department of Justice will settle the case out of court with the Alliance Defending Freedom, likely rolling back transgender prisoner rights. An amendment to the case, filed in May of this year, claims that the regulations for transgender inmates under the Obama administration are a politically driven agenda to affirm that gender identity theory, rather than biological sex, is the normative basis to determine whether an inmate is male or female. The case argues that the inclusion of transgender women at the facility is harmful to the cisgender inmates, increasing the potential for rape and violating the privacy of the inmates. These are largely the same arguments used in bathroom bills to discriminate against public accommodations for transgender people. Carswell has private shower stalls and has already policies in place to protect the privacy of inmates. It is also worth noting that transgender inmates are more likely to be subject to rape and sexual abuse when housed in men's prisons. One transgender prisoner at Carswell, Donna Langen, feels that her life would be in danger if she were transferred away from Carswell. The Alliance Defending Freedom was designated by the Southern Poverty Law Centre as a hate group, citing their defence of state-sponsored sterilisation of transgender people and their push for reclimatization of homosexuality. Texas, of course, was the site of a political standoff last year with the statewide bathroom bill, Senate Bill 6, failing to pass through the Texas legislature after the Texas Governor Greg Abbott forced a 30-day special session largely to pass the same.
You've been listening to a Trans Advocate podcast that was cobbled together by Kristen Williams, who is very sick right now, and wants you to feel bad enough about that to go to patreon.com slash transadvocate and support the Trans Advocate's work. The Trans Advocate is a project of the Transgender Foundation of America, a 501c3 non-profit, <laughs> all rights reserved. <laughs> The Transgender Foundation of America is not responsible for the opinions expressed herein.